0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the
1: Radio Player app. Well, today for our hot question of the day, we want to ask you how you feel. And the reason why we're asking you that is because of some new statistics that are out from Statistics Canada having to do with the country's crime rate went up. In 2018, for the fourth year in a row, just a little bit, went up by 2% last year. There were over 2 million incidents reported by police in 2018. And so every for every 100,000 people, that's about five hundred and five thousand four hundred and eighty-eight incidents. Now, the severity of crime, they said, also went up by 2%. However, when you look at the 10-year span of reporting crimes, both the rate and the severity of crime are still substantially lower, according to Statistics Canada, than they were in 2008. We're talking 17% difference. So crime was still much higher and worse 10 years ago than it is now, even though we are seeing a bit of an inching up of those numbers. Apparently, the crime rate in Canada, and I did not know this, peaked back in 1991. And it's been in pretty big decline ever since then. It's fallen by more than 50% until right about 2014, but in 2014 started to inch back up again, which is why we're seeing this year a little 2% increase over last year. And it said, well, a big reason for that increase is the number of sexual assaults that are now being reported to police. That is good news because we can't say those weren't happening before, but maybe they just weren't being reported to police. So we are seeing an increase in that as well. But this leads us to our hot question of the day today. Really, the crime rate is a number, right? It has to do more with how safe you feel in your neighborhood. And that's what we wanted to know. Do you feel more or less safe in your particular community where you live, your neighborhood, compared to, say, a year or two ago? Do you feel more safe? Do you feel less safe? Or do you feel about the same? And I know that depending on where you live, I'm sure you're going to have a very interesting response to this question. I know people in Surrey would probably argue that things have definitely changed for them over the last two years. And even people in some Vancouver neighborhoods, the same. But where you live, do you feel more or less safe in your community when you compare it now to a couple of years ago? Let me know. Go to simisarah 980 on Twitter to cast your vote. You can also go to at CKNW to respond there. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And there's always our buzz line as well, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Well, you've undoubtedly heard about how conservative premiers in Canada are leading the fight against Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government's plans for resource development. Well, joining that fight is the Premier of the Northwest Territories, Bob McLeod, even though he, like all members of the Legislative Assembly in the Northwest Territories, are technically non-partisan. So why step forward in this fight? Why now? Well, to talk more about this, we're joined now by Premier Bob McLeod. And thank you very much for being here today.
2: Uh very pleased to be here, Seema.
1: Why did you decide to do this?
2: Well, uh, as you know, uh, we had uh, a mor- moratorium in the Beaufort Sea on uh, oil and gas uh, drilling uh, was uh, imposed on us. And uh, uh, then that resulted in uh, uh, $2.3 billion worth of work uh, uh, that was bid on, didn't go forward. And then... Uh, Uh, for almost three years we didn't produce one molecule of oil and gas in in the Northwest Territory so consequently that uh, affected our economy and then we realized that uh, uh, without an energy sector in Canada uh, that our significant resources of oil and gas uh, would not be developed and uh, so it was in our interest to uh to, uh work with other like-minded provinces that uh it's in their interest to make sure that uh, the energy sector continues to uh uh grow and thrive and uh you know uh we're in the same position as uh Alberta where if uh, we can't send our product east, west or or south, then uh, we're landlocked. So then our only option is to look north. So,
1: What is the better way of dealing with this then, Premier McLeod? How, how would you like to see a federal government deal with this issue?
2: Well, I think that uh, they would uh, work uh, to uh, uh, make uh, Canada a good place uh, to invest in and to create more jobs. And uh, right now, uh, very difficult uh, uh, to, for a pipeline to be built. Even ourselves, we had uh, a pipeline, Mackenzie Valley Natural Gas Pipeline Project, that uh, was approved. We had a certificate of conveyance and public necessity, but it wasn't built. And uh, uh, so, uh, without uh, methods of transportation, it's very hard to, to develop uh, uh, the oil and gas resources.
1: So then what is your message to the federal government from the Northwest Territories on this?
2: Well, I think that, uh, you know, we had uh, uh, negotiated devolution. Uh, there was, uh, in 2014, uh, there was a, uh, a trigger that was supposed to be pulled six months after devolution to uh, negotiate uh, co-management of a gold fort offshore as well as uh, resource revenue sharing and uh instead uh, we have a moratorium and uh and now the legislation has uh, been put in place to provide for moratorium and uh you know so but we've since uh, started negotiations and it's our objective to negotiate the moratorium out of the co-management agreement and uh uh you know unless we have that it's very hard uh, to uh get the uh oil and gas sector to come back
1: How promising is this though for the northwest territories like, what kind of potential is there
2: Well i think they um, you know the potentially uh we're got the uh i think it's uh, uh a large part of the world's inventory of Oil and gas, and we have to find a way uh, to develop it. And uh, I think that uh, oil and gas uh, will still be needed probably thirty years from now. So uh, we are very interested in finding a way to get the resources uh, developed and uh, transported to uh, some other countries uh, other than the United States. So.
1: How do you balance that, though, Premier McLeod, with the environmental issues? I mean, Northwest Territories, it's also a very sensitive environmental area. People are very aware of that. How do you balance those two things?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, uh, we come to realize that uh, we're a small population and uh, a large jurisdiction, so the amount of greenhouse gas uh, we create or generate is Insignificant in the Northwest Territories. I think it's 0.01 percent of uh, the world's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So, in our mind, the problem is the south. Like people in southern Canada, uh, they don't see <coughs> the effects of climate change on a on a daily basis like we do. And uh, so, uh, I, we're saying that we have to find a way to educate southern. Uh, not only southern Canadians, but uh, uh, everybody else outside of uh, Canada about uh, how climate change is affecting us. And uh, we uh, we think that we need more investment in the north. The uh, geopolitics of the Arctic is changing. We're starting to see uh, uh, superpowers like Russia and China, the uh, United States and Europe are all showing increased interests in, in the Arctic. And I think that uh, uh, we as a country need significantly more investment in the Arctic for us to maintain uh, our Arctic sovereignty. I'm, I'm talking about how we can uh, uh, have a strategic investment so that uh, we can increase Canada's presence in the Arctic. I think we need uh, more investment in uh, uh, icebreakers, we need ports in the Arctic, we need uh, a larger military presence, and we need uh, a University of the Arctic and more Arctic research, and I think we need people from the south to come north and see for themselves.
3: A lot
1: of what you're talking about there, the port, all of that, is that only possible, though, because of the impacts of climate change?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, it's Uh, it's uh, changing. I mean, that's the reality. Uh, You know, we're well situated uh, where uh, with, uh, you know, uh, passage or sailing, uh, sending goods from, say, China to Europe, if it goes through the Northwest Passage uh, or through a northern route, uh, it takes about 20 days off the sailing. So that's a significant uh, advantage. Uh, Also, most of the international flights fly over the Arctic, so we see uh, a significant benefit in uh, making the uh, Arctic or Northwest Territories an uh, economic-free zone, uh, something akin to what they're doing in Singapore that would transform us into uh, an a air and transportation uh, center, which would... Uh, benefit us significantly.
1: So what has been the reaction from the federal government when you bring up these issues? Because these are some pretty big ideas.
2: Well, I mean, uh, we got that idea from uh, working with the federal government. And, uh, you know, they were saying, well, you know, you got to look at transforming uh, your economy. And uh, so we don't have oil and gas, we don't have mining. Uh, What else what else could we have? You know, we're not going to get the, the federal government to move a bunch of factories from Ontario to to the Northwest Territories. So uh, we think that uh, by uh, strategic investments in infrastructure and uh, in developing uh, our air and transportation routes, that uh, it would be uh, one of the best ways to demonstrate Arctic sovereignty by Canada. And uh, we, have, uh, uh, we have put forward a vision paper that I'll be hosting a mini-conference in, uh, in Toronto this week. We're heading there. We're having reception Thursday night, and we're having a conference on Friday where we're presenting the details of our plan. So,
1: Well, we look forward to hearing more about that and seeing what the reaction is. Premier McLeod, thank you for your time.
2: Thank you very much. Have a good day.
1: That is Bob McLeod, Premier of the Northwest Territories, well, let's talk about some more environmental issues today. You may have heard about that rock slide that had happened northwest of Kamloops. It created quite a problem on the part of the Fraser River that was critical at this time of year for thousands of salmon to return to their spawning grounds. This was a huge problem for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and they have dealt with it today by using helicopters. Yes, Helicopters is what they are using to make this work. So we wanted to know more about this. So joining us now to talk about it is Andrew Thompson, Regional Director of Fisheries Management at Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Andrew, thank you for joining us today.
4: Uh, Thank you for inviting me on.
1: This seems like a very unique solution.
4: Well, it's one of many solutions that we're trying to do in order to mitigate the effects of this slide, uh, certainly moving fish by helicopter is unusual. It's not unheard of. There are instances where we, uh, because of the distances involved, we have moved fish before. But in this instance, of course, it's not about the distance. It's about the, trying to get them over a blockage that's in a very remote and difficult to access area.
1: Yeah, can you tell Sorry. me a bit about the area? Tell me a bit about what happened here.
4: Yeah, so a, a rock slide occurred uh, in a, a fairly remote area. It's, uh, it's about two kilometres north of the Big Bar Ferry, which is about 60 kilometres north of Lillooet on a fairly remote part of the uh, Fraser River. Quite a steep uh, gorge and a, a fairly large amount of rock, or quite a large mm-hmm. amount of rock, I should say, fell off of the side of a cliff. The cliff is about the same height as the Lionsgate Bridge. And so a very large area, and that rock is now in the Fraser River and is uh, creating a, a velocity barrier, we call it, for the fish uh, and preventing them uh, from migrating upstream uh, into their, their spawning areas. And so that velocity barrier is created about, a, at, at some current levels, about a five metre drop uh, in the river.
1: Oh, okay. Has this kind of thing happened before? Like, have we got any lessons that we've learned?
4: Well, we certainly had. I mean, rockslides occur, and, and we've had some experience, of course, with with rockslides on the Fraser and, and other areas. This is a particularly critical area. It's a very narrow spot of the Fraser River, and north of this spot is is a number of very uh, significant uh, salmon populations for us. Uh, both uh, steelhead, uh, uh, Chinook, coho, and and uh, sockeye populations are all upstream of this. And so it, it's a very significant issue for us to try to, to deal with in a, in a rapid manner.
1: Okay, so you're using helicopters, but how? Like, what, what are you doing?
4: Well, this, so this is one of our strategies. We we've, we've built an off-channel, uh, artificial off-channel area off the Fraser River. We're going to pump water into that off-channel, create a stream flow through it. That will attract the fish as they come up the river into that off-channel site. We will scoop the fish out of that off-channel site in, a, in buckets and transport them over the, the, the site of the, uh, the slide. This will We're going to trial this today and then hopefully get going uh, full-scale tomorrow. This will move uh, significant numbers of fish, uh, certainly of the Chinook, the critically uh, threatened Chinook. But it's just one of the four strategies we're, we're looking at uh, employing uh, to try and mitigate the effects of the slide.
1: Yeah, okay. What are some of the other things? Because I thought that's a, that's a lot of buckets you're going to have to use. It,
4: it is. And so, we, we, I mean, first and foremost, what we'd like to do is manipulate large rocks into the, uh, in, into the slide area to try and create a, a natural fish ladder or a, a series of pools. And so we've been safing the area uh, using rock scalers to make the area at the base of the slide safe and hope to start that moving those rocks uh, this week. Uh, We've also been constructing and designing, constructing uh, temporary fishways that we might be able to lower into the system to give, again, the same sort of passage for the fish up there. And we're also exploring uh, the analysis of whether or not the uh, Washington State-based fish cannon, or the whoosh system, as it's called, uh, could be deployed in this remote location to, to transport the fish past the falls. And, and other options are, are also being considered, uh, uh, you know, as, as they're brought to our attention as being potential options. We, we certainly have a team in place trying to consider. It's really a, an all-out effort on, on behalf of ourselves, the province, British Columbia, our partners, and, uh, and First Nations in the area all trying to work together to, to fix this problem.
1: I'm sorry, did you say a fish cannon might be involved?
4: Yeah.
0: Like,
1: what is yeah, that?
4: There's a company in Washington State that's developed a, a transport system for fish that uses a long tube and, and uh, proprietary technology. And they've deployed it in a few instances in, the Washington, in Washington State and Oregon to move fish past dam sites. And it's, it's garnered some attention because it's, uh, it sounds neat and, and has, a, has a, a catchy name. The difficulty, I think, for us is is such a remote location, such high-flow water that we're still in the process of working with coming to evaluate uh, whether it could be effectively used.
1: Okay, so what is the critical time period here, Andrew? How long is this going to go on for?
4: Well, we've got you backing up now, so it's critical for us now. uh, Coming down uh, or coming up river at some point in August, we're going to have millions of sockeye as well. So throughout the course of this summer, this will be a focus of both uh, the department, our, our other federal partners, uh, the provincial government and, and uh, First Nations and, and, and other groups to try to find ways to mitigate this. We think over the longer term, yeah. when when uh, the water levels drop, we'll be able to have a chance to go in and and mitigate and fix sort of over the longer term. That type of manipulation is uh, not unheard of for us. But the short term problem of trying to fix well the water levels are high, that's that's been the the focus of our efforts.
1: All right, Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Sounds like a fascinating process. That's Andrew Thompson, the Regional Director of the Fisheries Management Branch at Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Well, let's say happy birthday, shall we? Happy birthday to Vancouver International Airport because it was on this day 88 years ago that it officially... Opened uh, Back then, the airport could hold, ooh, a whopping 12 large planes or 30 small aircraft. Today, a bit different, right? Home to 56 different airlines. Uh, they've got 125 nonstop destinations worldwide that they service. And they also have a unique operating model. It's a community-based, not-for-profit organization. And they've been trying to highlight that recently. You may have seen or uh, this great video. I watched it last week. I laughed so hard when I watched it online, where they talked about um, trying to promote the idea that they are a community-based, not-for-profit organization. They wanted to find a celebrity spokesperson. They thought maybe Ryan Reynolds might be good. Have a listen to the video. Or not. Maybe just in just a moment, we'll get you to listen to that. Right now, though, let's introduce you then to Craig Richmond, who is the president and CEO of the Vancouver Airport Authority. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Why decide to focus on this now?
5: Well, we've done some polling, and uh, about... 17% 17% of British Columbians actually know what our model is. People think we're the government or they think we're a private company and so yeah. the money is going offshore. And we thought, no, we want you to know that when you come to the airport and, uh, and you pay for uh, parking or you know, duty-free, any money we make goes back into running the airport as a community-based, not-for-profit airport. We think it's important people understand that model. It's a big economic engine. You know, sixteen and a half billion dollars in output, twenty-four thousand workers, uh, about a hundred thousand jobs support around the province. We want people to know who we are.
1: Who came up with the Ryan Reynolds idea?
5: That would be my magnificent uh, marketing <laughs> department. They 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 put me in it, don't they? You they know? really
1: did. Well, we have the idea now, so let's have okay. a listen.
5: We've got to find a perfect spokesperson. That can't be it.
3: you vetoed everyone, Craig. Nobody is going to know that we're a community-based airport.
5: Wait a second, I've got the perfect person.
3: Who, Craig?
5: It's somebody who can connect with the community, who people love, and it isn't Michael Buble. Who is it? Mr. Vansini Reynolds himself, Ryan Reynolds.
3: We've been through this before, Craig. He's too famous. He's a very busy actor slash gin distiller. It's just not an option.
5: You know what, fine. If you can't get him, then I'll find him. I will go out and convince Ryan Reynolds to be the spokesperson for YVR.
3: How are you gonna find Ryan, Craig? What are you going to do?
5: Whatever it takes, comms person one, whatever it takes.
1: I love that line, comms person one. This was really funny. Who happens to be the director of comms, by the way. (laughs) The whole video is very funny. And like thousands and thousands of people check this thing out online. Were you surprised by that?
5: Well, uh, I'm surprised that people like it because, frankly, we're a bunch of hams with no training. But, uh, you know, whatever gets the message out, you know. And uh, I would also like to say, uh, if Michael Buble is stalking me, I do like you. I was just, it was just for fun. That was only <laughs> pretend. Uh, Did you get any
1: response from Ryan Reynolds? Though? We
5: haven't yet, but I think he's actually not tweeting. He may be on holidays. Uh, there will be some follow-up uh, videos. So, oh, will uh, there? So we're not done yet.
1: Do you need a celebrity spokesperson at Webier?
5: You know what? We just think it'd be fun. You know, I, I look at uh, at Ryan Reynolds' sense of humor, his aviation gin uh, commercials, and everybody knows him. And we think it would be fun. You know, we we uh, we we think we could have some fun together. I, I did something similar a few years ago with Jackie Chan. He was fun to work with. So.
1: I can imagine he would be, yeah. Yeah,
5: he was a real gentleman. So, you know, anything like that, anything to promote the message, we're happy to do it.
1: And if you're wondering why Ryan Reynolds, and you got to watch the whole video, because they go through all sorts of other celebrities. You mentioned Mike Gubble, Seth Rogen... Been there, done that. Translink,
2: taken, taken, taken by Translink.
1: Yeah. <laughs> taken by TransLink. Uh, it's a fun thing. So this clearly is a mission that you're on to kind of change that message from the airport. Why do you feel it's so necessary to tell people that the operating model of the airport is different?
5: Well, you know, people will say to us, "Well, you know, where does the money go?" And and, uh, and you'll often see comments, "Oh, you know, eight people own the airport." Actually. The entire province owns the airport. It's run by a community-based board. Everybody uh, who who is on the board lives in Vancouver, and uh, no money goes to shareholders. And I think sometimes when people think, well, look at all the money that goes into the airport. Yeah, Yeah, but it all stays there. And that's why the airport is building. I think right now we have probably 2,000 construction workers building expansion to the International Terminal, a new parkade, a new geo-exchange building, which will drop our greenhouse gas emissions hugely It's all money that people have spent at the airport. So it doesn't go anywhere. It actually benefits BC.
1: How competitive is the airline... Air the airport industry, I should say, because like it seems like there's always a list or a ranking out there of great airports.
5: It's it's very competitive, uh, certainly in terms of customer service, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this year we won for the tenth year in a row uh, best airport in North America. That certainly helps us marketing to uh, to other airports or airlines, uh, but also fees. You know our fees are our airline fees are the lowest amongst the biggest airports in Canada and comparable with Seattle. Uh, our AIF is uh, comparable to the big airports in Canada. Airport, the airport, airport improvement, improvement fee. fee. Um, you know, we try to keep our parking reasonable based uh, 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 prices based on downtown prices or a little less. In fact, we want to have a wide variety of parking so you can park right next to the terminal, you pay more, you park on the Canada line two stops away, you pay less. You know, we're always very, very cognizant that air travel can be expensive, so we're trying to keep the cost down. That actually brings airlines.
1: How significant has the Canada line been to the airport?
5: Huge, huge. Uh, I remember I was a uh, uh, on the executive when we were deciding to put $300 million into it. And and as the VP of ops, I thought, wow, you know, we built a lot of runways or taxiways or, or terminal, but it, you know, we all know how tough the traffic is in Vancouver. The Canada line now uh, takes 21% of the people who come to the airport are on the Canada line, and that includes workers and travellers. And then when you add the bus uh, bus travellers, it's about 25%, which is the highest ratio of mass transit riders to an airport in North America. It's low compared to Europe and, yeah. and Asia, but it's very high for, for North America. So we don't make any money. That $300 million was in a community investment. We don't get any money back from uh, the ad fair or any of the operating costs. We just said, look, it's the right thing to do.
1: What can still be improved, though?
5: Oh, yeah, well, constant improvement. Uh, I got back as a CEO six years ago. We've added 9 million passengers in six years. So uh, we are expanding the building. We're always looking for ways to improve the processing time per person so we can get you through faster. Um, one example, almost everybody who's traveled would have used the passport machines when you come back into, yeah. uh, into the airport. We invented those, and we actually sell those around the world. I think really? we've sold 1,600 of them now.
1: Like YVR owns that technology? Yeah,
5: we sell them all over the U.S and now into Europe and Iceland and Cyprus. And it was just, it was born out of, look, we have to do something for our passengers here. And then other airports said, hey, I want to buy that.
1: Because now the the United States uses that in the customs area upstairs yes. as well. Is that the same technology? That's ours. Really? It, yeah,
5: invented in Richmond. And the uh, actual machines are built in Surrey, and uh, we ship them all over the world.
1: What was the impetus for that? Like, why did you say hey, we got to move people through faster? Or?
5: Yeah, you know, we... we Working with both Canada Customs and U.S. Customs said, look, we're not going to get a lot more officers and you're getting a lot more pastures. What, what can we do? And so uh, it, of it course, takes years. The technology has to be invented. Then you have to build the regulations. But I have to say, you know, we're getting 4,000 people an hour now into Canada Customs. If you think about that number, without those machines, we would be swamped.
1: Yeah, I remember when you used to come back and the lineups would be huge at Customs. And now you kind of just sail right through.
5: You know, I have to say that the, the airport is very busy, but, it's yeah. n- but you're, you're actually you're moving through. And uh, a lot of airports around the world and uh, now in Europe, uh, they've realized they have an issue with people that are non-Schengen. They're not part of the EU. So all the visitors and uh, from uh, all over Europe, they're looking at our technology.
1: So is there an airport, though, around the world that you look at and say, okay, we're still not there yet. That's the airport I want to emulate.
5: Oh, there's excellent airports. You know, it's become a real industry. Yeah, it has. Uh, I love a good airport. Yeah, Amsterdam, Schiphol was... Probably our model from the very beginning of a really good connecting airport, great, great run airport. Uh, and I also have a, a, a really, uh, I, I'm envious of how innovative Singapore Changi is. They, are, they do everything from uh, butterfly museums you I can walk that, through yeah. to go for a swim. And I look, boy, they're fast and they are very innovative. So we, we benchmark ourselves against them.
1: Uh, how about more food? Can we get more food at the airport?
5: 20 more food and beverage outlets are coming. <laughs> you
1: could tell where my priority is. <laughs> well, right? you know
5: what? It's a big deal, right? It, it is it's a big uh, deal.
1: If I'm going to kill hours at the airport, like, I need some food options.
5: And we want you to have good food options. So you'll see a bunch of new food and beverage outlets. They're actually starting now. In fact, just last week, we opened up a new Illy coffee shop, you know, ah, a yes. high-end coffee shop. There's going to be uh, Steamworks. Steamworks. Uh, Really, uh, brewery there's on the domestic be side or domestic? You know, Hawksworth and domestic. I mean, we're kicking oh. it up within the next year. You'll see some really iconic uh, Vancouver and BC brand names.
1: Is that because like we are now spending so much more time at the airport? Right, like I'm one of those people who likes to go super early just in case there's a problem. And that means that you're always going to be spending a couple of hours there.
5: Yeah, if you go back pre nine eleven, you would have had maybe seventy to eighty percent of the retail and food and beverage would have been pre security. Well, now people want to get through that because exactly. of course it's longer. So we put it all post security. And I don't blame you. I get to airports very very early. I'd much rather be on the other side. And then uh, you know you can stroll. You go through a bookstore. You can go look through an electronics store or stroll through duty free. You know we'd like it if you'd buy something. And then uh, <laughs> but but also you know sit down and have a nice drink in the uh uh international expansion is gonna be a beautiful new set of restaurants with uh, you know four-story high walls looking out at the north shore mountains and we think you know especially for international visitors their last bit of canada you know have a piece of salmon some bc wine perfect
1: that's it. When can we expect to see some of these changes?
5: The big international terminal expansion will open in June of next year.
1: All right, something to look forward to. Craig, thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday.
5: Thank you very much. That's
1: Craig Richmond, the President and CEO of the Vancouver Airport Authority. At about 2 o'clock this afternoon, we expect to get, hopefully, some more answers, or at least some things, to shed light on what has been happening in the northern part of our province, where we've got three now murder investigations going on there. Two, of course, the couple that everybody's been talking about, for the last week, the Australian man, the young American woman uh, who were killed while on a trip through uh, the northern part of the province and into the territories as well. The other is a body that was found about 470 kilometres away, and they're still looking for more questions as to that example as well, as to what exactly happened there. So the RCMP will be holding a press conference at 2 o'clock today. But we wanted to get more information about what's been going on up there, what's happened. Uh, We're going to be checking in with Nadia Stewart, our global news reporter, in just a moment. And we'll have her on the line with us right now now oh no i lost her again that's me that's my fault i keep doing that uh we'll have nadia stewart online uh, with us right now who's joining us from fort nelson hi
3: nadia hi how
1: are you today what's going on in fort nelson
3: uh, nothing really happening in Fort Nelson at the moment, um, but we are—we've um, we, been told by um, our friends over at Channel Seven uh, from Australia, who are also here, uh, at waiting at the airport. Some um, investigators from the RCMP should be arriving as well. So that is what we're waiting to see now. Yeah, let's talk about that. You mentioned
1: your friends at Channel Seven. How big of an international media presence is up in that part of the province right now?
3: I think it's going to get bigger. We know that Channel 7 is here. We know that Channel 9 was here, because they've also spoken with the, uh, the road crews that we spoke with yesterday, who were among the first on scene. Uh, but so far, we've been the, the only local crew that we can see up here covering the story. Right. OK, and run through us uh, with this, Nadia.
1: Then what happened up there and the, the new situation over the weekend that developed too. what is that all about?
3: Uh, that would be the the situation in in Dees Lake uh, yeah that that investigation uh surrounding a vehicle that was found burnt out and and the body of another individual that person has not been identified and now we have this investigation of two missing teenagers from Port Alberni. so lots of questions there especially as we made our way up into uh near Fort Leard where all of this happened uh with the Fowler and Dees investigations people have a lot of questions. These two locations are only about or just under 500 kilometers apart. Uh, So people have a lot of questions about what is happening out here and why they're not getting any answers from RCMP about that.
1: Now, I know I've been following your stories and you've been talking to witnesses and people. What do we know so far about Lucas Fowler and China Deese and the kind of trip they were on and what happened?
3: As far as we know, this was a trip along the Alaska Highway, something that People do in the summertime. It's, it's a beautiful uh, spot to travel. So we know that they were making their way up uh, from the Pink Mountain area. That was the last place that we talked to, uh, or that was the first stop we made actually on our trip here, and talked to a woman at the Pink Mountain campsite who said she remembered the couple. They were young. They were happy and love, excited uh, to be making this trip. And they were recommended, you know, you should go on over to Liard Hot Springs. So they made their way uh, along Highway 97 heading north. Uh, And at some point, their vehicle broke down. We talked to the Broughtons, who were on their way home from a camping trip on Sunday morning from the Yukon. They said as they were driving south along Highway 97, they spotted the couple with their broken-down 1986 Chevrolet van parked by the side of the road. They stopped to ask them, you know, do you need any help? Is everything okay? And uh, the husband, Curtis Broughton, he says when he talked to Lucas Fowler, he was impressed by his knowledge of what was wrong with the van. He knew exactly what was wrong what needed to be fixed he was waiting for uh, something to drain there some fluid to drain and he was certain that once that fluid drained he'd be able to fix up the car and off they would go so they were sitting there by the side of the road having a picnic the Brontons checked to make sure they had enough food and water and then they left and then sometime between Sunday night and Monday morning is when something just went horribly wrong. Right, so that was the, so
1: there's a bit of a 12-hour time period there that RCMP want to know that if anybody saw them during that time, that's the key period that they're looking at.
3: Yes, and, and having a conversation with one of, the, uh, one of the roadside workers, so these are road maintenance workers uh, who work up in that area, and they were among the first on scene. Now, in our conversation with Trevor Pierre, he was the one who held the scene until police arrived, He also told us about his supervisor as she was heading back to the work camp on Sunday night at around 11 o'clock. She also mentioned that she saw a third person there with the couple. She did not stop. She said she told her colleague something didn't look right, but she just kept on going. And then the following morning, only to discover that that something had gone wrong. Right. So she felt that it was notable enough, though, that she kind of noticed it. That's right. She made some kind of. She made a remark about it. She made a mental note about it, uh, and noticed that third person there. Now we are told um, that uh, an RCMP sketch artist has been up to the area um, and has met with her and, and gotten a description of this third person that she saw. But that information hasn't been released. And also, a vehicle. She mentioned that there was a vehicle. We don't know anything about this vehicle. So hopefully at 2 o'clock we'll get these answers from RCMP. Yeah,
1: Nadia, do you think there's a lot of pressure on RCMP right now to provide more answers?
3: At this point, yes. Uh, you know, people in this area are are unsettled. Um, you know, they just want some answers. They just want some assurance uh, that there is no connection between what happened in Dees Lake and what happened just outside of uh, Liard Hot Springs. Uh, they also want to know what happened to, to Lucas Fowler and China Dees. Um, you know, the the circumstances just sound so suspicious. Yeah. And uh, and folks here, they, they just need some assurance uh, from police that, that they have some leads, maybe they have a person in mind. They want to know that um, the police can tell them something to, to put their minds at ease.
1: All right. Well, Nadia, thank you so much for that. You're most welcome. That's Nadia Stewart, our global news reporter, reporting from Fort Nelson today. We've been talking a lot today about crime statistics because Statistics Canada has just released their new numbers. And you may find them a bit confusing if you've been following along in the news because there's ones about overall, countrywide, and there's some local well ones as well. The, the nationwide ones show that Canada's crime rate actually ticked up by 2% year over year, 2018 versus 2017, but locally, it's a very different picture. Vancouver's crime rate actually went down by 2% last year compared to 2017. So good news for Vancouver, not so much for other areas there. Abbotsford admission, crime increased by 2%. In Kelowna, the number of crimes increased by 5%. So it just really does depend on where you live. Now that's part of our hot question of the day today, which you can check out at CKNW on Twitter or at SimiSara980. But we wanted to kind of disseminate these numbers a little bit further and get more information on all of this. So joining us now to talk more about this is Hillary Morden, who's a criminology lecturer at Simon Fraser University and PhD candidate. Hillary, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So I guess with numbers like these, we also have to be a little bit careful, right, to translate them, because there'll be a lot of headlines about this today.
0: Yeah, well, your media, you understand how media uses yes. crime statistics. <laughs> and the one thing that, first of all, we all need to keep in mind is that statistics are, first of all, these are police-reported statistics. So we know there's a dark figure of crime that isn't reported or isn't found by police. That, you know, many people are exposed to or experience um, and for some reason don't report, you know, there's a number of reasons for that, um, as well as personal experience where, you know, I was a victim of a crime and so it feels like crime is up, yeah. but it, maybe it's not overall, Right. So perception is a big part of how we sort of accept the statistics, um, but we also have to keep in mind what the statistics show and what they don't show. Okay, let's start with that then. So what don't they show us? Well, they don't show sort of hot spot areas or areas that have lower levels of crime within a city. So we all know in Vancouver, there are parts of Vancouver that have more crime and parts of Vancouver that have less crime. So just like Canada, when you talk about, you know, overall, Canada has seen an increase in crime But if you break it down, really, it's the north and the east of Canada that's seen an increase in crime, whereas the west and the northwest have seen a drop in crime. So the statistics, it can get pulled one way or the other if one area experiences a vast increase or a decrease in crime. That can pull the stats one way or the other. Okay, so So when you
1: looked at these stats then, what did you find significant,
0: say, for here in B.C.? Well, I I saw some good news, and one of the things that I saw as good news was the increase in police-reported sex assault. Now, it's not good news that sex assault appears to be up, but let's just take a step back and ask ourselves... Has this been affected by the Me Too movement? Are more people reporting? Because in general, sex assault is one of the lowest reported crimes. So that increase of 15% may simply be the 15% that are now reporting. And then of course, Canada also changed the way it approached unfounded. Sex assault. How how they classified the each specific case, and unfounded are dramatically down. And what that means is that police departments are less likely to put a sex assault into an unfounded category now, um, which has all kinds of of uh, activities that that roll out from that. Um, whereas in the past, they would have been more likely to call a sex assault unfounded if they didn't get enough what they believed was enough evidence for it. Right. So to me, when I see an increase of 15% in sex assault, I I feel good about it because what that says to me is people are reporting it now. Right. Right, and that it's getting investigated in ways that it wasn't in the past. So um, really, when you look at stats, the one stat we pretty much can say is a certainty, and that's the homicide because we're counting the actual number of bodies on the ground, and that is not debatable.
1: Okay. And, so, and what was
0: that stat like? Well, homicide is down 4%. Um, but again, it's being heavily influenced by uh, provinces like DC, where we've seen 30 fewer bodies on the actual ground over the last year. And that's, that's good news. But when you look at it per 100,000, it's dropped from one82 per 100,000 to 1.76, which seems like a much smaller number. Or the actual physical bodies, 651 this year compared to 666 last year.
1: So a lot of those numbers, though, come from BC. A lot
0: of that decrease comes just from BC. Some of it is, yeah, BC and Alberta both were stable in their crime, but UConn, for instance, had a drop in 7% in crime overall, which... That's going to have an effect, right? That's going to help weight crimes down. So, yeah, you have to. What you have to do is you have to look sort of underneath the big numbers and ask yourself what's going on. So, for instance, fraud is up. Police reported fraud is up thirteen percent, and I actually believe it probably is up thirteen percent. But part of that is also reporting. People are able to report more readily now, and they know to report now, whereas in the past, maybe not.
1: Right. right? You mentioned fraud. Was there another statistic where you thought, okay, this might be problematic?
0: Um, Well, all statistics are problematic in and of themselves until you start, you know, breaking it down and, and looking at what's going on. Um, theft, for instance, shoplifting or theft under 5,000 and theft over 5,000 are both showing large increases, but that may also be hot spots, and you'd have to break it down to much, much smaller uh, units like block areas uh, to see what exactly is going on. Is that because With the opioid crisis and all the the focus on that and ergo the homelessness that has come with it and lots of people believe that those individuals are committing property crime and is that a reaction of property owners that now they report every time their propane tank goes missing or is it really an increase in those crimes? So those are kind of the questions that we have to you know, look at. Those
1: are all good ones. No, those are good ones. I was thinking you managed to help us put that into perspective, which is what we were looking for. So Hillary, thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. That's exactly what we were looking for. That's Hillary Morton, criminology lecturer at Simon Fraser University and PhD candidate, reminding us that when you see those stats today, and you're going to see a lot of headlines with them, Stats Canada reporting in on crime statistics from across the country, keep those caveats in mind, dig down a little deeper on them. Well, you know, we talk a lot about transit projects. It's a very popular discussion. I know last week they got an update on what the Surrey SkyTrain is going to look like if it heads out to Fleetwood, which is what they have the money for. And of course, there's planning that is ongoing right now for the UBC subway. How far down Broadway? Is it going to stop at Arbutus? Will they be able to keep going? Well, these transit projects have huge impacts, right? We know that they dramatically impact the neighbourhoods that they are in. I'm sure they're experiencing uh, something like that along the Evergreen Line in Port Moody right now as well. We've seen it happen along uh, you know, Broadway. We've seen it happen at Commercial in Broadway. We've seen it happen out to Burnaby as well. And there are more projects like that on the way. Gets people thinking, right? What will these major pieces of infrastructure do to the value of properties that are in and around a proposed? transit route. Well, researchers at UBC have actually been taking a look at some case studies that could help shed light on this. They've got a new report where the findings just came out this morning, and we wanted to talk to the person about that. It's Anne Ming Zhang, who's a professor in the Operations and Logistics Division at the UBC Sauter School of Business and a professor in air transportation for the Vancouver International Airport Authority. Ann Ming, thank you very much for joining us.
6: Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me to uh, participate in this discussion.
1: Well, we really wanted to hear about this. So, what exactly did you look at in your study? Uh,
6: we look at uh, the uh, uh, the impact of uh, a subway, a new subway line, on house prices uh, in China, uh, in China, Shanghai, uh, the city of Shanghai. And uh, so basically, we look at uh, uh, the, you know, before this uh, new line opening mm-hmm. and after this new line opening, uh, we have a uh, uh, house price. And these are the same house. Uh, they have a transaction before uh, the line opening and there's uh, also a transaction uh, after. For the same house unit, uh, there's a transaction after the line opening. And we try to see uh, the price difference. Uh, uh, how to explain this price difference? From uh, the try to isolate the impact of this new line. Uh, in particularly, we find uh, through this uh, uh, time saving or uh, access to a major employment uh, center mm-hmm. uh, for them for CBD. Uh, so uh, while controlling for other factors, and we want to see uh, this. Access to uh, easy access with the opening of the subway line uh, to CBD uh, uh, kind of translating to uh, uh, you know house price.
1: Okay, and what did you find then when you looked at all of that? Uh,
6: first of all, uh, that uh, the price uh, average price has uh, increased by three point seven five percent, and uh, uh, so in other words, that uh, this is the average. But if you look at uh, the houses along the line, uh, further away from the CBD, Mm -hmm. uh, the the price increase uh, a little bit more than uh, the price appreciation uh, for houses near uh, CBD. Why? So, so you you know, as you know that, uh, uh, of course, people want to work in CBD and want to uh, live nearby CBD to save uh, commuting time. But on the other hand, that uh, CBD houses are more expensive. So as uh, a compromise, they live a bit further away from CBD, for example, suburb, in order to save uh, cost from housing, expensive housing, and maybe some other uh, congestion related to CBD uh, living. So, uh, But uh, uh, compensated for that is the long commuting time. And so what we have, the the impact of this line is that uh, somehow this uh, negative relationship between uh, the distance to CBD, uh, you know, some kind uh, is kind of flattened. In other words, that, uh, you know, it's time saving from further away from CBD. Uh, with the, uh, this new subway line, uh, saving is even more than, uh, you know, uh, people live uh, near uh, CBD. Right. So, so that's it why was even the appreciation is a bit more.
1: Greater than what you thought it was going to be. Uh, that's uh, yes. Uh, compared with
6: other studies, this 3.75% is a little bit on the uh, high end. Uh, maybe this has to do with that. Uh, uh, you know, as you know, that uh, uh, Shanghai is uh, was expanding uh, mm-hmm. rapidly during the study period, and uh, because of ridership is uh, quite uh, healthy, so uh, the frequency, uh, the train frequency, is quite. Uh, uh, quite high, and uh, also the fare is uh, reasonable. So this really ensure uh, enough ridership. And in other words, that uh, uh, this uh, subway line is very uh, you know feasible mm-hmm. and effective uh, means of transportation. So uh- that helps. Uh, the enough ridership and also the appreciation of the uh, houses,
1: right? So along you, the line, you looked at the prices there, I mean, But did you also look at availability? Like, did, were more houses available along the subway line, not just the price increase?
6: Yeah, this takes some time. Uh, usually, that uh, uh, developers will uh, seeing uh, the availability of the line, uh, the subway line, and they will try to build uh, uh, some of the houses and apartments. Uh, near the line, near the stations, mm-hmm. uh, such that uh, you do see this, uh, uh, you know, uh, dynamics uh, with time pass by uh, after the opening of the line. Uh, another important uh, results from, uh, result from our study is that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the result I just described is considering just one CBT, one major employment center. But uh, in a city like Vancouver or uh, uh, Shanghai, there's multiple employment uh, centers. Uh, In other words, that uh, this line connecting uh, three major uh, employment centers. So, uh, if you look at uh, the impact as compared to just consider a CBD as uh, as a center, you do see that uh, uh, the benefits, uh, uh, you know, uh, the capitalization of uh, uh, public transit into housing price is some kind of amplified if you have multiple. Uh, right. uh, centers along the line. So, in other words, that even people living nearby downtown, once they have this line, they can also perhaps work in another, uh, you know, uh, center which is not downtown, but uh, it's also uh, along the line, maybe uh, suburb or between the suburb and the downtown.
1: Right.
6: So, in other words, that it's a two-way, rather than just from people in suburb and moving to uh, CBD.
1: Right. So it's not just people who, say, live in Surrey and work in Vancouver, but if you work in Vancouver, now all of a sudden jobs and opportunity open up for you in Surrey.
6: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Like Surrey or uh, YVR or, uh, you know, universities like UBC or downtown, they are all multiple uh, uh, centers so what uh, it's very important that to see this implication that uh, uh, in a sense uh, medium term to long term that uh, uh, the public transit development projects may also uh, facilitate uh, the growth of multiple uh, transportation centers uh, which bring uh, benefits uh, to uh, urban uh, setting because uh, as you know major uh, cities have this downtown congestion and the pollution uh, and also high housing price. And if you have, uh, uh, you know, mobility is facilitated by those public transits, and then you may have multiple uh, kind of centers for people to live and for people to work.
1: Is that why, okay, so that's why you think that Vancouver's would be different because you would have those multiple centers, right? It's not just one line because that one line would connect to all sorts of other lines. That's
6: right. That's, that's somehow uh, kind of uh, amplify the benefits Uh, of uh, uh, a public transit project and also uh, it points to the uh, direction of building uh, these lines it's better to have a line which somehow connect uh, these uh, different centers or uh, before uh, we put into a line somehow anticipate that uh, somewhere along the line there's a possibility uh, for uh, new centers to uh, to be developed.
1: So you talked about price increases, though, and ming Is that not just also for, like we talk about affordability issues, right? In Vancouver, we want to build transit so that other areas are more affordable. But your research shows that prices go up everywhere.
6: Yeah, pretty much everywhere. Uh, the, as, as a matter of fact, that uh, further away from, uh, uh, for example, CBD, the price appreciation is actually is a little bit more. Uh, so this is really against uh, the affordability issues, uh, so but on the other hand, that uh, somehow alleviate the downtown uh, price and also uh, congestions, you know, all these uh, uh, negative aspects with uh, crowded downtown. Yeah, that that's so true. Yeah.
1: Right. So we have to watch out for that. Right. Because if we're buil- right. if we're building transit to make things more affordable, th- we have to be careful.
6: That's right. That's right.
1: How do we do that then?
6: Yeah, this is a point that uh, which uh, we haven't uh, uh, really uh, kind of uh, uh, looking into it. Uh, one of the projects we are uh, carrying on uh, doing this uh, is uh, bike sharing. Uh, there's some cities in Europe, uh, in Asia, this uh, so-called shared bikes. And uh, so uh, once you have bike sharing uh, programs, uh, housing a bit further away from stations uh, also see uh, appreciation. The study we uh, carried uh, you just mentioned uh, is uh, really considering uh, you know houses near the station within uh, six hundred kilometers, uh, six hundred meters, uh, with uh, also within one uh, kilometer. We did some right. sensitivity analysis, but uh, if you have this uh, bike sharing uh, available, uh, which is uh, very convenient to use, uh, then uh, the uh, the price appreciation can be a bit further, uh, can be extended to uh, a kilometer uh, plus.
1: Right, so then it's not just transit, we have to build more than that. Yeah, yeah,
6: yeah, yeah.
1: Interesting. And Ming, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank you appreciate that. And Ming Zhang, who is a professor in the operations and logistic division at the UBC Souter School of Business and a professor in air transportation for the Vancouver International Airport Authority. Uh, he's part of the team of researchers who just looked at this study. They looked in particular at this new subway line or new infrastructure project in Shanghai. Earlier in the show, we were talking about the price of avocados. Oh, I know all you avocado lovers out there. This is very troubling news to hear that in the United States alone. The price of avocados has gone up 129% in the last year. They're blaming bad harvests in Mexico and California. And essentially it's put a big price squeeze on this very popular fruit. Yes, fruit, because it has a pit. Uh, So what are you going to do? If you love avocados this is really costing you more money. A wholesale case of avocados in the United States is now selling for up to $100 US. That's up from $36 just a few months ago. So yeah, there's definitely some production problems there. However, when we take a look at groceries right now, avocados are not the only produce item that is end up going to costing you more. According to Canada's food price report, the average Canadian family can expect to spend $411 more on food in the year 2019, so this year bringing their yearly total grocery bill to $12,157. And yes, that is thanks to more expensive fruit and vegetables, which by any measure of healthy eating, we should be having more of, right? We wanted to talk more about this. Joining us now is Professor Simon Samoji, who is the Errol Chair in the Business of Food at the University of Guelph. Thank you very much for joining us today.
7: Well, thanks for having me.
1: So why are things getting more expensive? What, what What's causing this problem?
7: Well, one of the big problems we have in Canada is where we're geographically located. We're so far north that means we can only produce uh, fruit and vegetables, particularly the fresh kind, in a very confined, small time of the year, which means that for most of the year we have to import the fruits and vegetables that we need. And that's where things got getting expensive.
1: Are there particular types of fruits and vegetables that are causing us the most headache?
7: Well, you mentioned avocados before that it's a, it's a product that we have to get uh, from Mexico uh, and the U S takes most of their production. And a lot of the troubles that have been happening politically in the U S have pushed that, but we've also seen not, other imports and other issues impacting. So we've seen listeria and E. coli bacterial outbreaks in the U.S. and that meant that a lot of the lettuce that we get had been held back. Uh, supplies got low. We've seen almost a 13% increase in the last year in lettuce uh, but we've also had problems close to home. Uh, we've had a very wet uh, fall last year. and That meant a lot of the root vegetables that we get from eastern Canada, places like PEI, places like New Brunswick uh, got damaged, supply dropped. So we've seen crazy things like potatoes are up almost 20%. Carrots have been up almost 30% since the start of the year. So uh, we're really getting hit hard in the pocket when it comes to fruits and vegetables.
1: That's so challenging for Canadian families, isn't it? Because here we are, we're supposed to be eating healthier. I think many Canadians want to do that, but it's becoming more expensive to do
7: so. Definitely. I mean, We had the uh, new health uh, guide come out a few months ago, yeah. and it showed the plate of food that we should be eating, and half of it's pretty much fruit and vegetables, which safe to say is unfortunately is getting more and more expensive you know there's ways we can fix that in a couple of ways we can start making fruits and vegetable production in greenhouses uh, more efficient uh, putting more investment from government funds into that and private sector Uh, but there's one there's one thing we can do as consumers fresh is good but as we said sometimes it's really expensive so if you're short on cash check out the frozen food aisle there's fresh, oh, sorry to say there's frozen vegetables and fruit that's nutritionally just as good. It mightn't taste as good, but um, it's a lot cheaper and uh, a lot better, as as good as fresh sometimes.
1: Yeah. Why do you think that there is that reluctance? Because I've heard that from, you know, dietitians and nutritionists for years is that, listen, frozen is your next best option. But why do we shy away from that? <laughs>
7: I think it all comes down to psychology, and there's the saying, we shop with our eyes. And when we walk into a grocery store, we see the lovely piles of apples and oranges so and lettuce, and we think it looks great. Um, and then when you think about a bag of frozen vegetables or you know carrots or peas, it doesn't have the same sort of romantic, um, beautiful connotation that you'd have with the fresh stuff.
1: This also has, this goes, it explains part of our um, problem that we have in eating blemished produce as well, doesn't it?
7: Uh, very much. The the grocery stores want to have the best stuff in the shop so that we will go out and buy it. Um, and we talk about blemished produce and you know in a lot of cases it's, it's just as good as the stuff that looks perfect. It's just as nutritious. Um, but once again, consumers shop with their eyes and with their pockets. Now, if they see something that doesn't look as great but is a lower price, yeah, some, of the, some people will take it. But people will always, when, we, when we're standing in front of the grocery section and we, we see the fruit and vegetables sitting there, we always pick out the ones that look the best. Um, and that, it just comes down to psychology.
1: You know what's funny, Simon? About that, it? Like, I know exactly what you're saying. It's just psychology. I've been hearing this for years. Like, we should look for the imperfect produce, and yet when I go to the grocery store, I still find myself falling into that habit of looking for the best, whatever it is that I'm shopping for.
7: Definitely, it's just the way we are as humans. And even though we tell people that the uh, blemished up is just as good, people don't always listen to arguments. So I talked about the new uh, Canada Food Guide that came out a few months ago. We did a study at, at the University of Guelph that, that showed that, you know, we've been told for decades to eat from the Food Guide, eat what the Food Guide to, provides to you. But it but our study showed that the Food Guide is the sixth most important source of nutritional information for Canadians. Um, so it's we, we go out, we educate people, but sometimes the message just doesn't get across.
1: Do we need to make more... Canadian production a priority? Do we need to focus more on eating local produce as well?
7: That's a tricky one. Um, without question, local produce is really important, but it's also very seasonal. And so that means for most parts of Canada, it's between May and October um, to November that we can eat local stuff and then we have to import the rest. So yeah, in season, Check out the local stuff, try to go to farmer's markets. Now, farmer's markets aren't the cheapest thing if you're on a budget, but you know there is local stuff. I think the government needs to also think a little bit more about this. We've just seen the federal government release the uh, idea of a food policy for Canada. And a lot of the discussion there is around uh, promoting healthy eating, uh, helping indigenous communities uh, become food secure. But not a lot of discussion is about producing food here. And the simple fact is if we're going to produce more food here, we've got to find ways to get to produce it, say, indoors, in greenhouses, um, and putting research and development money around genetics of fruits and vegetables that will do better in those environments so that we can have a situation where we're having to import less fruit and vegetables and being able to grow it more here.
1: Right. So we need to rethink this, not just assuming that, oh, we can eat avocados as much as we want because we just bring them up from Mexico.
7: It's true. You know, I think for some fruit and vegetables, we're always going to have to get them from elsewhere. I think avocados is the classic example. Um, And citrus as well. Um, You know, those types of things, we just don't have the environment for it. Um, And even you can't really grow those indoors because they're big trees and that doesn't work in in greenhouses and, and the like. So we are always going to have to be importing some fruits and vegetables.
1: All right. But in the meantime, though, it sounds like, Simon, Canadian families should brace themselves to spend a little bit more money next
7: year. Brace yourself. We, we, we saw, a, we predicted in our our uh, food price report, a 3.5% increase for this year, and it's tracking at about 3.5%. Um, let's just hope that we don't have more bad weather slowing down supply, increasing price. And as we talked about before, if price is too much, check out the frozen aisle. In a lot of cases, it's just as good.
1: All right, I'm going to do that. Thank you so much for your time.
7: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: That is Professor Simon Simoji, who's the ERL Chair in the Business of Food at the University of Guelph.